certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Welcome to Claremont in Conversation. The verdict, Natalie Bongiolo and Damien Cripps with you today. Damien, this is probably the last time we'll chat on this podcast until the 23rd of December when we will come back for the sentencing of Bradley Edwards. But we do have some final legal questions from listeners that you might be able to clear up for us and some of them are a bit curly as they have been throughout this podcast. Uh, Before we get to them, can you just first talk to us about what's likely to happen on the 23rd of December? I mean, how will this um, day of sentencing unfold? Um, Okay, Nat, great to be here with you again. Um, And it is a good question. A lot of people are curious about how that day will unfold. Essentially, everybody or anyone who wants to come to the court, if they can fit everyone in, will get in. And um, the lawyers will be in and the judge will be in. And then they'll call Mr Edwards up and he'll come up with the security people and he'll be sat in the dock there. Um, And then Justice Hall will read the charges to him and just let him know, remind him, I'm sure he knows, remind him why he's there, and then he will hear from the prosecution, um, and then there might be a conversation between the prosecution and the judge, and then he'll hear from the defence, and similarly, there might be a a conversation between the defence lawyer and the judge, and then he will deliver his um, sentences. There's always a possibility it could be adjourned or there could be a short break, But in a circumstance like this, I would have thought that um, both the prosecution and the defence, Nat, would have sent written submissions to the judge uh, well, well um, well before the actual sentencing date. So I'm sure Justice Hall will be going to that date with a view to having it all dealt with on that day. So then once he's heard any oral submissions that either of the two counsel want to make, he will deliver the sentences to Mr Edwards. And... I mean, what are the maximum penalties for these crimes? What sort of sentence would we be looking at? Well, the maximum pen- the maximum sentences... Now, look, I haven't got... When you're charged with a, a charge in Western Australia, most of these charges, I'm looking at them, all of these charges appear under the criminal code. But they do come in different permutations. So... so for instance, if you've got, I understand one of Mr Edwards' charges a break and enter. Now, we don't really call them break and enter anymore. So that charge from back in, I think it's 1988, is a long time ago. So it's not that easy to access what the maximum penalties are. I think for anyone that's actually trying to ascertain how this sentencing might transpire in terms of quantum, I think the, the best thing, because I've thought about it as well, the best way to approach it is to go, It'll be very difficult for um, Mr Edwards to get anything other than um, two um, life terms in in terms of those two murder charges that he's been convicted of. Mm. Um, and and this very very unlikely that he'll ever see the light of day, even just on those two charges. But I think it's it's important to for people to know that the the two charges that he's got. Um, of unlawfully detaining someone and essentially um, to put that into simple terms that's kidnapping somebody and you know you don't have to kid to kidnap somebody you don't have to actually pick them up and take them away to another place you can just lock them in their own room and not let them out that you know that's essentially the same thing and that's a serious 
um, very, very serious charge. And it, because we value our liberty so highly, and right, I mean, not only do we value our liberty, but we value having the choice not to be detained by somebody. Um, and there's different permutations of that charge as well. But, um, you know, on the, the most minor of a, a charge like that, there's a, a, the maximum penalty is 10 years. It's just give an indication of how serious that charge can be, even at its lowest level. Um, Natty's got the two um, sexually related charges as well, and they can carry ch a maximum penalty of 10 years, and they can carry a maximum penalty of up to 20 years, depending on the circumstances. So... Mr. Edwards has got a hectic day on the, and I don't say that lightly, I mean, mm. hectic to for everybody involved to try to work out how they can structure these sentences. And does it work that um, with penalties that they are applied from the date of the crime or does it apply to the date of the charges ordinarily? Well, this is one of the quandaries about sentencing because... Uh, obviously, when it comes time for him to be sentenced in December there, he will have served a significant amount of time in custody. That has to be taken into consideration. So that, that are, they are some of the um, things that they'll be trying to straighten out in their written submissions and in their oral submissions on the day. So, for instance, um, where will – there's a totality principle. So um, essentially in the Western Australian Sentencing Act, there's a – a principle called, to, not in the Sentencing Act, but in law in Western Australia, there's a principle called totality, which essentially says that if somebody's going to be sentenced for multiple offences, you can't put a penalty on them that'll be so crushing that they that, that there's no hope for them ever. Oh. Now, that, that, that'll be quite offensive to a lot of people when they're thinking about um, this offender. But across the board... When we're sentencing people, we're not just trying to, you know, we're not just trying to, we, we might as well sentence people to death if we're going to think along those lines. So the totality principle will come into play to some extent, and I would have thought that Mr. Um, Jovic will be making submissions to the effect of um, if, if he's going to serve, for instance, two life sentences for the two murders, anything you're going to sentence him to in relation to the others could be made to run concurrent. Yes. You know, those kind of um, principles where you, you could say effectively it will have no impact on the amount of days, hours, minutes or seconds this man will spend behind Western Australian prison bars. But what it will do, it was that will actually make um, the, the sentenced person, the offender, realise that it's not just the, the practice of sentencing to completely crush him forever. Mm. Because, and again, this will be something that will be... Um, quite difficult for people to, to quite possibly fathom, but the, the, the corrections department will want Mr Edwards to take part in programs while he's inside. They want him to interact with other people. It's not like otherwise we might as well sentence him to death. That's the whole point. So um, it's a really important principle. And I, look, I haven't done any sentencings of this magnitude, so it'd be, it's difficult for me to fathom how Mr Govich will um, structure or make submissions that that sentence um, should be structured, but it'll be very interesting because I'm sure the prosecution um, will have a sound argument that in this case, given what the community have been through, there should be no consideration for him to have rehabilitation or anything. And and obviously, on the other side, Mr Jovic should be um, arguing 
you know, the humanity of what we are and what we try to achieve in our sentences and all of those kinds of things. And it'll be it'll be interesting to hear the two um, the, the, the two sets of submissions back to back. Yeah, you're right. And from a community perspective, you know, a vast majority of the community would be saying, "Throw away the key." Simple as that. That that's right. And and it'd be, it'd be an interesting um, conversation, is it? Isn't it? Because and I certainly don't mean to. Um, torment people that might not be of the same view but if we throw away the key do we is it the community's view that he should not have a television is it the community's view that he should he should have the most basic and probably (laughs) simplest meals it's very difficult and i understand that's what people probably think but if you're running the prison and you know they get set certain guidelines and um protocols that they have to conform with and it would be difficult to have one person who's essentially, as you put it, had the key thrown away when other people have got TVs and, 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 you know, any number of other things. Look, I don't know whether he's got a TV. I don't know what the situation is for him out there, but um, I do know that he's in a system that does, you know, and we've got an obligation to, while they're in prison, take care of them. Yeah. I mean, this kind of gets us into a question uh, from Chris, who's sort of asking about plea deals, really. And, you know, we know that Justice Hall said Edwards is a likely suspect um, in the in the death of Sarah Spears and even the probable killer. We know the, you know, the Premier implored Edwards to disclose any knowledge he may have of Sarah Spears' body. So Chris asks the question... Does WA law allow for the possibility of offering Edwards a reduction in his sentence in return for disclosure of the location of Sarah Spears' body? And if so, have the prosecution considered doing this? If not, why not? Uh, So there's an interesting um, difficulty with that because um, he's obviously been acquitted of that allegation. Yeah. And now that he's been implored to give up details of evidence and it flies in the face why he would do it because I'm not sure that the law would provide for him to get a discount in sentencing in relation to the other two um, to the other two crimes that he's been convicted of uh, I'm, I'm obviously putting the earlier crimes away I'm just talking about the two yes. um, murder convictions that he's got uh, so essentially what we are saying to Mr Edwards is you tell us where the body is We'll potentially then convict you of that murder, and then we might give you a discount off that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it, it, it's it's. I have been thinking about it since the day, um, the day of the conviction. So, and, and okay, the other question to throw in there about that as well is, imagine the prosecution trying to do a deal with him about that. I, I mean, I, I struggle to, um, I struggle to put my feet down and feel firm that the prosecution would offer him any indemnity mm. for um, f- for offering that up. But at the same time, I also understand that the family, um, you know, would, uh, the Spears family just want this to be resolved and want to have some answers. I completely understand that. But I think that it's, um, uh, it, it's, tre- uh, it's troubling to think that I, it, even sitting back and looking at it objectively, I can't see a pathway for him to get any um, any discount, if I could put it that way, um, for, for offering that up. Although I know that most people would say if we could get to the answers, we should. Yeah. But 
you know, he's he's in a difficult situation. I think that the answer lies in the first thing that I said at the start. He's been acquitted of the murder. Why would he say anything about it? Um, because if he offered anything up, he would potentially open himself up to being retried, which is what Tim and I had discussed in one of the podcasts there. And and if he got retried, then he would he open himself up to a third conviction. It seems a bit unlikely to me. Yeah. And I, I do apologise to Chris. I know that answer is a bit circular, but um, it's the best that I have to give you at the moment, Chris. Sorry. I think, Chris, the only thing we can say with any kind of certainty is that Commissioner Dawson's uh, officers will be paying uh, future visits to Edwards. I suspect that's the only thing we know for sure. Um, now, Ashley has a, a very interesting email that she sent to us, and she asks, why is it that Mr Edwards' previous conviction for the Hollywood hospital attack was allowed into evidence in an unrelated trial? Is this due to the fact that the evidence collected in that matter linked the accused, now convicted, to the Claremont case, or was it solely used as his history of attacking lone women? I was under the impression that historic, unrelated evidence that could sway the verdict would not be admissible in a new trial, or am I mistaken? Well, I'm a defence lawyer, so I'm on your side. Um, but it's essentially propensity evidence. And, and, and I think there was one line there, Nat, that, um, in the question that hit the nail on the head, which said, it shows a jury or in this case it was a judge, it shows um, his history of attacking lone women. And I think that's the, the key because that is ultimately what the, this trial was about. It was about Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon and Sarah Spears, who at the time were lone women who got attacked in the night. And and I think that's that's what draws this prior offending into what we call propensity evidence, and that's why um, it, it's something that could be raised and considered. And ultimately had a pretty significant part in Mr Edwards being convicted. Absolutely. And would do you think it would have been allowed into evidence had it been a jury and not a judge alone trial? Well, it's it, it would have gone through a, a, a couple of um, processes, uh, but I, ultimately I think it would have been a decision for the judge alone anyway. So that would have been uh, an application that was made by the prosecution before the jury were, were brought in. So that would be something the judge would have considered on his own. Mm. And then if the judge had made the decision that the propensity evidence could go in, then it would have been presented to the jury, not as a question as to whether they thought it should go in. It would have been either presented or not presented. I see. Uh, coming from Catherine, why isn't Bradley Edwards being charged as a child sex offender if the Karakata victim was under 18? Obviously, the age of consent is 16, but she's not consenting and she's still a child. So the, as um, Catherine's uh, pointed out, the age of consent is 16 um, and there's, there's a few um, variations on that law, but ultimately this is a case where um, she was over, the, 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 as I understand it, I haven't seen the material facts and all of the details, of it, but as I understand it, she was over the age of 16. So for the purposes of what I think Catherine's talking about, he doesn't fall into that category. Yeah. And that's not to say that I agree with it or that's, you know, that's simply to say that as the law set up at the moment, um, 16 is the age, under 16 is the age when you would be considered in that category as um, Catherine has set it out. Right. 
Um, now, Tom has a question about Bogsy, and for those of you who haven't heard that Edward's high school nickname was Bogsy, now following the verdict, Channel 7 News spoke to a friend of Jane's, um, and and she says that Jane told her in a phone call that she was planning to meet Bogsy in Claremont that night. And of course, we now know that um, this is the nickname of Edwards. And I guess Tom's question is, um, you know, he'd like to ask your thoughts on why this wasn't brought up during the trial and why it hasn't been made into a bigger deal. Well, we don't. It, maybe it was investigated, Tom. I mean, it's it, it's very. I mean, it's almost um, impossible that it wouldn't have been investigated. So, it's not uncommon for things like that to be investigated and the police not to actually give it any merit. So they might follow it down a, a rabbit hole, if you would, if you will. And what they're looking for in the rabbit hole is not there. But I mean, it does seem quite a pertinent piece of information um it might have been used to to take them somewhere i mean i don't recall anything like that coming up in the trial either no Uh, remembering i wasn't there every day but i didn't hear anything about it that but perhaps what is helpful is that it doesn't take us anywhere because uh we've got no confirmation that that actually happened so perhaps um it's it's a it, maybe the view was it was too circumstantial to actually take anyone anywhere. Mm. Um, John, that's the best that I can give you from where I'm standing. Yeah. All right. Well, this uh, lastly, this is from Brent, and he wants to know from you what happens after the trial, and what is the mindset of a defence barrister once their client has been found guilty. Presumably, you have a duty to review the decision and seek and points for appeal. However, on a psychological level, how do you and can you accept the judgment? Do you form your own view of guilt or innocence or is it your duty to believe your client is innocent and uphold their innocence if that was how they pleaded during the trial? Does your view ever change over time? Uh, Good question. And you've got no shortage of questions for me today, have you? (laughs) We'll make this the last one because there are so many. But yeah, this is an interesting one to finish on. Um, so I can only answer this from a personal point of view. And I've spoken to a lot of my colleagues about the similar uh, similar concepts that are raised in that question, Brent. But um, being a defence lawyer, and I, I guess being a prosecutor would n- not be that dissimilar. But what, when you go to court um, and, and as a defence lawyer and you think to yourself, um, okay, I hope we can win, or I hope this goes well. And then you get a verdict where you are successful, and let's say hypothetically the success is that your client is acquitted. It is euphoric, and mm. and there's nothing short of it is euphoric. And it's um, when I say it's euphoric, it's because professionally you've been successful. Professionally, you've found a way to argue a point that the police and the prosecution didn't think had any merit, but the court or jury has agreed with you. So professionally, you're quite euphoric. And I guess in some cases, you know, you might get a little bit um, connected to the client and you you might have some empathy for what their situation is in certain circumstances. But the key point that I want to make about that is you fall flat very quickly. It it doesn't last. I I promise you, if you are in in some of the biggest matters that I've been successful in, I, I would have been back in my office an hour later, being flat again. Like it, you fall off that perch very quickly, but um, it, it is a really 
it's, it's a real high, like the, the rush when you, you hear the verdict of acquittal, you, you're peaking very quickly, but it, it falls flat. Mm. But the upside of that is when you are in a situation where you are professionally unsuccessful, if I put it that way, and you're convicted, you sink pretty low the same. So you, the, the downside of that is that, but the upside is you come back up pretty quickly as well. So, yeah. And I think that's a really healthy way for um, defence lawyers or prosecutors to exist because there must be some um, celebration internally and some um, devastation internally at the, at the result. Otherwise, why would you pursue a career in doing, doing this? When someone is acquitted... Um, that's the end of that, but it, unless the other side appeals. But when someone is convicted, um, I think you're certainly obligated to let them know that there's a certain amount of time they've got before um, before which they have to appeal. And then you, you, you'll just say to your client, look, I think that your case is good and I think the court might have got this wrong. That's my preliminary view. Do you want me to go now back through all the transcripts and see if I can actually pin down an argument for appeal? Mm-hmm. And the client will... Uh, generally speaking, say oh, that'd be great. Uh, how much is that going to cost? Because obviously, that's you know, once someone's been to trial, it might have cost them lesser on legal aid. It might have cost them a lot of money, and then they're going to appeal it. So, um, I, I don't think you're ever obligated to feel any way about a, um, a a client. I think the best way to put it is you are obligated to do the best job you can possibly do for the person who's engaged you in the circumstances that you've got. So. Um, if you don't believe your client, that, that's not necessarily the end of it. You could just say to your client, look, I don't think that's very believable, um, but I appreciate that your instructions, and if that's what you want to do, I'll support you, and we'll run this trial this way. This is a way we can run it. Um, and then if they're convicted, I mean, that's when it gets extremely difficult because people who are convicted are, in the, in the eyes of the court, um, convicted. They're, they're now offenders. So when someone turns around and they're not prepared to accept that, um, that doesn't necessarily mean I don't. The way that I view it is that I'm an officer of the court and if somebody is convicted of something, I will, um, generally speaking, find a way to accept the court's finding. Even if I don't necessarily agree with it, I'll find a way to accept it because we have got nothing else. This is our system and we must stand by it. It's a good system. It doesn't necessarily come without its flaws, but it's a good system and it, and it gives people answers when all when they can't get answers any other way. So, yeah. uh, Brent, I hope that gives you some insight into what I personally, as a lawyer, ha- have experienced and how I deal with it. Um, and some of my colleagues have expressed the same thing. Uh, but I can't speak for everyone, obviously. And, Damien, would it always be that the same lawyer carries through with the appeal or would you sometimes have circumstances where the client's unhappy with the, um, with the guilty verdict and wants to appoint a new lawyer? So it's it's a really good question that because um, there's not there's no definitive answer for that but there is two versions the, the first one is that um, whenever a client of mine is convicted I um, will always recommend to them that they consider instructing a different solicitor or instructing a different barrister simply because it gives them the opportunity to have a fresh set of eyes so if you're going to send, spend the whole new set of money to run an appeal, wouldn't it be in your best interest to have another um, legal mind go over the same material to see if they can come up with something different? That, yeah. That's one of the things I'd always suggest. But there is also the other avenue when if you've been working with someone for one or two years to get them to the point where you're at a trial, sometimes they feel comfortable with you and they just they, they don't want to 
bring anyone else into the fray. They just want to stay. So th there's a couple of different ways that can unfold. Um, and you never can tell until you're at the point when someone's been convicted because people can change once they've been convicted as well. Yeah, I mean, and I guess it depends on the trial as well because, you know, imagine, imagine having to get a new set of eyes on a trial like Claremont. For someone to have to now get across the case would be insane. Well, and if, if you don't mind, that'll be funded by legal aid. Mm. Yeah, you that's know, right. I, I mean, and I'm, I'm not shy in saying that'll be funded by legal aid because that's the way our system is set up. So essentially, Mr. Edwards could now turn around and say, um, no, Mr. Jovic, that's no good. Oh. I didn't want to get convicted of those things. And now I'm going to brief Lawyer X. Oh, I shouldn't say Lawyer X because that's now actually somebody. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, another, a different lawyer. And yep. of course, then legal aid or in any case, whoever it is that's funding has got to finance that person to get across the case. And it's, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that doesn't bear thinking about in this case, does it really? Not at this stage, no. no. I mean, and I guess, you know, I guess at the end of the day, what you're saying is, you know, there's successes and there's disappointments uh, in this process, but I suppose that's no different to any job. You know, we all have successes and disappointments in our jobs and in our careers. I guess the difference is with this, the ramifications are great, obviously, and, and someone's life will be impacted either way. Yeah, I think that I think that lawyers get handsomely remunerated for that exposure. Mm. Um, you know, if the plumber comes to your house and he works hard, he gets his hands really dirty. He's got great knowledge about all things plumbing, and he's he looks after you and he gets in the roof or he gets in the ground and does all that stuff. And um, but a lawyer's fee will be, as I understand it, two to three times more than what a plumber's fee, simply because people are, are, are so invested in what the outcome of what the lawyer is trying to represent for them. So I think my answer to that is that the lawyers get paid really well. So so yeah. they need to expect, it comes with the territory, you need to expect that there's, people have got a lot riding on it. Yeah, that's right. Well, Damien, thank you as always for being so candid and for clearing up those final questions. Now, we will see you uh, at the Claremont Podcast Live. So that's our exclusive subscriber event on the 26th of November. Uh, am I coming to this? You are coming to this. You'll be there on the panel alongside... Well, this is going to be exciting. <laughs> so, so we're going to see people in person. We will see people in person and we'll record the podcast live. So there'll be a live audience in front of the podcast. So there'll be yourself, uh, our forensic expert, Brendan Chapman, myself, Tim Clark, Alison Fan, and Kate Ryan. So a, a Q&A kind of a live podcast where all of these people who have been on this journey with us will be able to join us, we'll be able to meet them and they can ask questions directly of us as well. Well, well Nat, I have to ask, you, you said, um, and sorry to everyone that's listening, I don't actually know the details of this. I'm fine <laughs> You've just been out. roped in. <laughs> uh, that's fine. I'm sure that I can get there. What is the situation with, if people have been listening to this, can they get tickets? Can yes. Can they come? So what this is, is if you're a subscriber to the West and you've been, you know, on this journey and, and following the coverage, you can join us and get yourself a ticket and it's at thewest.com.au forward slash Claremont event. If you're not a subscriber but have been listening to the podcast, you can still come and I think there's some special subscription offers available. So all of the information is on that site that I told you, thewest.com au forward slash Claremont event, but tickets are limited. So, will, will we be social distancing? 
Well, I think we're allowed to have up to, depending on the restriction stage at the time, I think we're allowed to have up to 350, perhaps. Great. This is going to be a great night. I'm going to have to get my suit all brushed up. <laughs> It'll be good. It'll be very interesting and, and just good to see some of the people who, like we know, you know, have, we have been on a very long journey together and it's been months and months. And, and from the emails that we get from everyone out there, we, we know that it's, um, you know, almost a relationship has formed. So it will be nice to meet some of these people face to face if they can get along. Absolutely. Well, Damien, I look forward to seeing you then. And thanks again once to everyone who's participated in the podcast and a special shout out to our producers, Kate Ryan, and in particular, Alicia Pretty, who brought us all together and got Claremont the Trial Podcast up and running. It was an absolutely huge effort and we are all very grateful for the privilege. So thanks to Alicia for uh, starting us on this journey in the beginning. And thanks also for your company along the way. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 23rd of December for sentencing on Claremont in Conversation, The Verdict. Bye for now. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune in to WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.